Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We're coming to you today from a new location. We're out in the studios of WUGA in Athens, Georgia, and delighted to be here and appreciate the fact that WUGA is playing host to us today. Um, And uh, we've got an announcement we're going to make in just a couple of minutes that I'm especially excited to be making for the WUGA listeners out there as part of our statewide uh, audience. Before I get to that, let me introduce our two panelists today. I'm really fortunate to have two of the stars of the University of Georgia Political Science Department on hand, and I'm going to introduce you in order of seniority. (laughs) Dr. Charles Bullock, the Richard B. Russell Professor of Political Science. That's a correct title, isn't it? That is indeed, yes. Has been at the University of Georgia teaching since 1968, and he still looks like he's 28 years old. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I wish. (laughs) Charles is, um, I think most people would say, the dean of politics in the state of Georgia. He's he's watched it for many, many years. And Charles, I'm really thrilled that we could have you with us today. Always great to be with you. Uh, We also have uh, one of your colleagues in the Department of Political Science here, Dr. Audrey Haynes. You hear her frequently on Political Rewind. And Audrey, I'm especially happy that you are here uh, because your applied political science program is something we've talked about a lot on the show. But one of the reasons we're out here today is because you invited me to come out this morning and talk to your political science, your applied political science students, to Dr. Bullock's students, to some of the people from the International Affairs Program, right? Who were all that? We had a lot of students. Who did we had a lot of students there. <laughs> Primarily, we joined our two classes today, but then we also had members of um, SPIA and Grady who have been in the Applied Politics Program over the last four years. So a lot of them who haven't graduated came because they know to take advantage of all the great speakers we bring, including one of the best who was here with us today, Bill Nygut, or maybe I should call him Professor Bill Nygut today. <laughs> it, was a, it was fun. We just came from a luncheon with some of the students, and that was particularly enjoyable to listen to some of their thoughts on what's happening in politics today. I'm also really excited about the fact my daughter Emma is out here in Athens with me, home from Brooklyn, New York, for the Thanksgiving holiday, and it's really a thrill to have her in the studio as well. Um, all right. You know, Tom and Sam have... It basically suggested to me that the announcement that we want to make, we should hold it till later in the show. I'm I'm all about immediate gratification. I'm not good at that. <laughs> when Political Rewind went on the air five plus years ago, we were on the air one day a week. We were on the air on Friday afternoon, and uh, that was it. And uh, over the course of those years, your interest in hearing our show and the appetite clearly for politics has grown immeasurably. And so... Uh, we, shortly after being on the air, added a second day and then a third day, and now we're on the air, as many of you know who listen regularly, we're on the air four days a week. Well, it wasn't enough. Starting Monday, January 6th, and it's been a long time overdue, Political Rewind will air every afternoon, Monday through Friday, still live at 2 p.m., and of course, you can always listen to us uh, on our podcast, go to our website at politics uh, at Political Rewind. And um, one of the reasons I said earlier that we're particularly happy about this is WUGA will now be carrying us five days a week. And we're, Charles, that's meaningful to us because this is a very important part of the NPR network in Georgia. And because there's so many smart people listening in Athens. <laughs> and it's been hard to try to pick you up when it wasn't on this. Yeah. <laughs> and to try to tune in from Atlanta or Cleveland or Bleckley or someplace around the state. Yeah. We're really very, very happy. So that'll start Monday, January 6th. Tom Faust is already losing even more hair over having to add yet one more show. <laughs> but I'm right with him in losing hair. All right, let's, let's get uh, to our topics of the day. I want to start with, of course, big news. Charles, you and I talked about it very briefly after it broke. Um, sometime within the last hour, AP was the first to report 
to move the story that Kamala Harris is suspending her presidential campaign. Kind of shocking news, considering where she started in this race. That's right. Yeah, I mean, she was, like one could say, almost the star of that very first debate. And, you know, and she brought up the busing question, and I was that little girl who got bused to, to a predominantly white school. And she jumped up in the polling. Yeah. But she had no second act. Yeah. And so it has been downhill ever since then. And I assume her money is dried up. Usually that's what forces you to the wall. Um, you know, yeah. And, and Audrey, one of the things about Kamala Harris is, I think it's safe to say, she struggled to figure out what her campaign was about. What was the message? She had been a district attorney, tough on crime. We knew that about her. That appealed to some people, not so much to others. Then she was about Medicare for all, decided that wasn't the right. She seemed to struggle to find who she was in relation to the rest of the field and to voters. Yes. And, you know, that's a part of the presidential nomination process. When they get out there, you know, they have to have that message that people believe is authentic and they will respond to. And it has been such a long process, this go-round. This is one of the longest. In fact, when I started studying presidential primaries, we had something that we actually called the invisible primary. The invisible primary doesn't exist anymore. This is when they would go out and they would do their fundraising, yeah. big fun fundraisers. Now it's all about they, they've gotten out there. It's, uh, they get out there early. They start raising money digitally. And very often they get ahead of the game. For example, I think, you know, their campaign, the Harris campaign, was shocked when she started moving up, when she seemed to be so appealing. And when you say she didn't have a second act, I don't think they were anticipating how well she would do. And then she had no response. And then all of those debates, so many debates, one after another, people are looking at the front runner. Once you do move up, people start looking at you and asking questions and paying attention. It's almost like you never notice that crack in the wall until you start staring at the crack yeah. in the wall. Um, we should point out that there's a Georgia connection here. Bob Trammell, the House Minority Leader in the, in the state legislature, was really early in endorsing her, uh -huh. Charles. Probably a, we get it, a smart move in his district uh, to, to uh, pick up African-American support, uh, to make sure African-American voters there understood who he was. But he jumped on her campaign pretty quickly, and some other legislators just recently endorsed her. Yeah, and uh, again, four years ago, we may remember that a number of Georgians got behind this Republican and that Republican. Yeah. They were getting behind people other than Donald Trump. And yeah. as they fell aside, they had to pick up their number two and number three choices. I wonder how soon—we've we, talked about the diversity of the Democratic field. People have noticed, and how remarkable it really yeah. is— that. We have a number of women, we have African-Americans in the race, and yet it continues to be the white men dominating the race. It's a question as to how far Cory Booker can go before he runs out of steam, if he does. I mean, <laughs> well, maybe does, there's yeah. a revival there, yeah. but who knows? Yeah. And if he does, and if he drops out, then one of the things that assures is we're not going to see a replay of 2008. And by that, I mean that uh, Hillary Clinton started out, and she was going to be the choice of African-American voters until... She got tripped up over in South Carolina by Barack Obama. And I, that's been kind of the thing back of my mind is that could happen to, to, to Biden. That, uh, one of the African-American candidates could suddenly catch hold yeah. and could uh, take away a major part of his strength. But well, it isn't going to happen because of, of Kamala Harris, certainly now. And We made a point on the show the other day when we talked about just that, the Obama yeah. victory in South Carolina, reminding yeah. people – that uh, up until that day, mm -hmm. uh, John Lewis, right. one of the most sought-after endorsers uh, in any presidential election year, uh, had been a supporter of Hillary Clinton. And he it was painful to watch, uh -huh. painful uh -huh. for uh -huh. him to do. But he had to come out and say, you know, I realize I have to get behind Obama, which was a devastating blow to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yeah, I remember the, the cartoon that Lukovich did. And it had John Lewis there. And he said, no, no. My sign said, go Bama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, Audrey, um, the other person who we're going to watch with some interest here at this stage is Amy Klobuchar. Um, she's sort of been hovering in the background there. She's also in single digits. But, there, you know, the question is, does she have an opportunity to gain some momentum? She had a great debate in Atlanta and uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if, if that part of the field narrows, that middle ground narrows, whether she can take advantage of that in any way. 
Well, and she may. I think that's part of the plan. I get an email from her every day, uh, as well as an email from well, every asking other. Asking you what she should do. She yeah. Say, oh, that too. Um, but also yeah. an email from everyone in the campaign. It's so so digitally oriented. But I would I would um, note that you know we pay attention to what's going on. But I think a lot of Americans are really just starting to pay attention to the Democratic campaign because they've been sidetracked by a lot of other news, things like the impeachment. So there is plenty of time for any of these candidates to, if they're smart, to take advantage of opportunities. And one of them is Harris dropping out. What kind of opportunity will that provide to another woman, to Cory Booker, perhaps, who is hanging on to by, you know, kind of a thread Uh, looking at uh, money. What will happen with um, Mayor Pete? You know, he is now someone who's getting a lot of attention. And you heard some of our students talking about, you know, whether they like him or not. Some of them do. Some of them are like, is he very authentic? So there's a lot of churn that's going to happen. And, you know, we'll see some things again in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then we'll start to see some people drop out, and then there'll be more change. Two notes about the students. Uh, One, in in the, uh, when I got to do the presentation to the uh, group, I did ask, I said, which one of these candidates have you, are there, is there a candidate there who may have a lot of great qualifications, but just isn't getting the message out? And one of your students immediately said Kamala Harris. So it's interesting that within the next hour, she dropped out. The other thing is at the luncheon, I asked your group of young people, everyone from a freshman to, I think, a senior or junior, maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, why not Pete Buttigieg? Why isn't he appealing to young people? And Charles, what Audrey just said is important. The the general consensus around the table was something that I never really thought about, mm-hmm. that there's a miss. He doesn't feel authentic to them. He feels too composed, too yeah. certain somehow of too himself. Too perfect. Too yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. What an interesting observation that is. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's... um. Uh, want to make another program note here because we're going to get into this in just a moment. Um, at 2.30 this afternoon, as many of you heard uh, during our news break with Ricky Bevington, the Senate is going to begin a uh, paying tribute to Johnny Isaacson as he winds down his tenure in the U.S. Senate and, for that matter, his very long career in elective office in Georgia. We're going to be listening to the Senate um, uh, business and um, assuming they get through their votes, and I, I understand they don't have too many today, when that starts and Johnny gets up to speak, we're going to dip into that and uh, let you hear a little bit of what he has to say. But Oh, I, I was waiting to follow up on something, um, Bill, because okay. I, I forgot something very important to okay. say. Okay. And that is um, one of the things that we should pay attention to with the presidential nomination and yeah. with Kamala Harris is, her campaign was crazy, yeah. right? So there were a lot of there was a lot of infighting, combat about what she should do, uh, and one of the problems might have been she peaked too early yeah. in this very long campaign that we're talking about, and that again burn rates were too high. So one of the things you mentioned about Amy Klobuchar, she hasn't peaked at all. Yeah, she certainly has. Right. <laughs> so I mean, this may be something that they're sort of doing on purpose, is you know not being out there. Um, controlling themselves. Yeah. I'd like to think that. I no, I know, I know. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Know. You know, okay. I, She'd be happy to be in double right. digits. Yes, right. she would. Right. But so, you do have to be careful that you don't peak too early. Absolutely. And you don't want to spend all your money. Absolutely. No, all right. No. So Johnny Isaacson steps down today, essentially. As I said, we'll pick up some of what he has to say when it happens. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Charles, we have been watching this remarkable process that Governor Kemp put into place when he decided to open the Isaacson seat for applications. Did you, by the way, apply, Charles? Because God knows nobody has more experience well, in Georgia politics. I, I, I thought about politics. it, no. But <laughs> <laughs> all right. We tell them that all the time. So yeah. we know now, formally, that tomorrow at 10 a.m., uh, Kemp will announce that, uh, that Kelly Loeffler, the uh, financial executive, part owner of the WNBA, uh, a cryptocurrency uh, uh, operator as well, is going to be his choice to replace Isaacson starting at the first of the year when the Senate goes back into session in January. And she will run for that seat during the special election in 2020, that election taking place on the same day as the regular presidential election in November. Right. Got those right, details right. 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 Mm-hmm. Um what do you make, Charles, of the fight that continues to go on between the most conservative Georgians, <laughs> excuse me, some national conservatives, 
some political commentators who are saying she's a rhino, a Republican in name only. Last or yesterday at some point, and I don't know if he did it on his radio or his TV show, but Sean Hannity, the great oracle of political wisdom, urged his people, his listeners, his viewers, to start deluging Kemp's office with complaints about Kelly Loeffler. Where is all this headed? Yeah, yeah. I was talking to a state rep this morning, and he said that yesterday his phone just blew up. And I said, well, now, were these people actually in your district or just around? He said, no, these are my constituents who are outraged. Uh, so, yeah, there there is a real rift developing within the Republican Party, which is presented a fairly unified front to this point. Yeah, you know, they're outraged, but are they they're not outraged independently on their own. It isn't as if they woke up, read the news and thought, "Oh, Kelly Loeffler, I'm angry about." It. They're being whipped into well, a frenzy by people and, like and, Sean well, and, Hannity. And, and, by... and well, also the queuing off of Trump and yeah. the story and which Trump. came out right. that uh, the meeting in the White House where Governor took Kelly Loeffler up there and introduced her to the president, the president didn't make nice with her, yeah. apparently. Yeah. And was, I guess things got very testy. And so that, you know, there's a segment of the Georgia electorate that cues off of these things. Audrey, it's a bold move by Kemp to not take the president's uh, advice. People are not used to, uh, you know, speaking out against the president's choices here. And if it works, he will declare once again his independence from conventional politics, which he's really done during his entire career to some extent. He's done it in terms of some of the appointments he has made. So this is a big, bold move that could have enormous consequences for his entire, uh, probably the most important decision or maybe one of the most important he has made so far as governor and is likely to make during his first term as governor. Yes, and it's something that will likely, you know, demonstrate who he is as a leader. Um, I would say also this really, to me, goes against some of the norms of what Republican politics at the national level has been. There's usually been historically some respect to the states to do what they need to to maintain their, you know, um, political status, do what's good for your state, for your electoral uh, situation. So this sort of goes outside of what we would expect a president to be doing. If the president were doing anything, they would do it sort of behind the scenes you know, exerting a little pressure, but to do it so openly, this goes along with um, what Chuck was saying that, you know, this could cause a rift. There are a lot of people in the Republican Party um, who are Kemp supporters who may find this to be offensive in some ways. And and I honestly think that some of the people in the Kemp, um, you know, uh, milieu were sort of taken aback that the president was doing this. You know, I mean, it was it was a, an affront on the other hand, there was that component of the electorate that made up its mind or changed its mind in the closing days of that gubernatorial runoff mm-hmm. and shifted behind Kemp because of what the president endorsed, endorsed him there. And so for those folks, they again, they, they probably placed uh, loyalty to the president above that of, of so, the governor. Yeah, and it's so divided for them, up yeah. that way. Yeah. But remember in that last poll that SPIA did, um, our... What's SPIA? Tell everybody out there. Oh, SPIA is the School of Public and International Affairs. Thank that, you. They contain our political science, international affairs, and public pay administration. Our, pay our, our salaries, yes. Yes, they, yes, they yes. pay the bills. But Trey Hood, who runs the Survey Research Center, did a poll recently for the AJC. And one of the things that um, came out was that uh, Governor Kemp, is much more popular than President Trump. He's well over, way and, over 50%. And yeah, yeah. The, the margin of error is probably on the positive end. So I think he was at 55%. He probably is closer to like 57 or 58%. Well, well yeah, so he's picking up some Democratic support, which President Trump is probably not getting any of that in. in no, Georgia. and this decision yeah. may help him pick up a little bit and more. That, yeah, I think that is what's really probably critical, at least in his thinking, is that, you know, what you really play for in Georgia politics is the white female vote, that the white male vote, 70, 80 percent of that goes Republican. The minority votes solidly on the Democratic side. And so it really is it's white women you play for. And we saw the impact they had in this last election where they elected Lucy McBath there in that sixth district. 
were instrumental in flipping 14 House seats and two Senate seats right there. In and North and ran the Atlanta. closest race right. in the congressional, in this up in uh, Gwinnett County in, well, in the The seventh. Woodall race, right? yeah. 433 votes yeah. there, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so let, without regard to the feud that's going on between more between Kemp and the really conservative uh, Republican uh, base out there, let's talk about another aspect of this. And that's, it's a risk because Kelly Loeffler is a completely, completely new candidate. She's never run a campaign before. We, all three of us, have watched campaigns for a very long time. And it isn't easy to suddenly become a candidate, to understand how to play that game, how to be uh, uh, to present yourself day in, day out, dealing with the media, going out there and... Uh, focusing on a message that you may. So there's also a risk, Charles, in how she performs as a candidate and how quickly she gets up to speed. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Is she going to inspire the base? Is she going to get people fired up to want to work for her, to write and send checks for her? Is it going to be kind of a pedestrian message, which leaves everybody flat and uh, kind of lurking just over her shoulder, potentially as Doug Collins or some other Republican who may jump in or multiple Republicans who could jump into this? So it, uh, you know, she's she's got to start campaigning probably literally today, tomorrow. Yeah. As soon as yeah. she's named. A lot, lot, yeah. yeah. lot of rookie mistakes yeah. are made uh, by people trying out for the first time as candidates. Well, yeah. rookie mistakes are, are made by, we just talked about Kamala Harris's campaign. Yep, Even people right. who have done it, they, yep. they make campaigns mm-hmm. are difficult. That's what we talk about in class all the time. And one of the pieces of advice we give to people who are running is hire a good professional. Because and, and not only that, listen to that person. Listen to that professional. <laughs> well, again, if you're the CEO, you may not be used to listening to people either. Yes. <laughs> but she has a little time. Yeah, well, she, she does. If, yeah. if, if everything yeah. goes well, she has some time and, um, you know, she'll have some guidance. Yeah, and, and she may turn to the people who manage the, the Kemp campaign, which clearly worked out well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's going to be fun to Not watch. It's going to yeah. be fun to yeah. watch her as she uh, gets the campaign underway. She's got a, you know, Charles talked about her writing checks. I'm sure she'll go out and ask for some money out there, but she's going to self-fund in many ways. We think she's going to pour, oh, the AJC thinks they're going to, she's going to put maybe $10 million of her own money into what will be a 20-plus million dollar race. Well, um, and let me tell you, Trump is putting in some money in Georgia, too, because a friend of mine uh, was just offered a job. Um, that is set up by the Trump Victory Fund working with the Georgia GOP. So they're looking at Georgia, and they see oh, Georgia yeah. as yeah. a place they're going to spend some money, just like Hillary Clinton did in 2016 for the first time, spent a lot of money in the state. So, All right. So if Kelly Loeffler immediately starts sinking money into commercials to introduce herself, it'll be fascinating to watch. And you would imagine that may be the first thing we see. I can't imagine. I've already made some requests yeah to have her do political rewind because we've had every Senate candidate who's announced has always had a slot to come in and do the first 20 minutes or so yeah. of political rewind. We want to give everybody that chance. We've already, I've already been talking to people about that. And uh, so far what I'm kind of being told is the suggestion is, well, for a while she's mm. probably not going to mm. do a whole lot out there. She sounds uh, disciplined already. So maybe she's already got it. All right, let's do this. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about on today's show. But why don't we get to our first break of the show? So uh, we'll do that now, and we'll be back in just a minute. What's the best way to give back to your community? That's a trick question because there are lots of ways. Hi, I'm Shankar Vedantam. Giving back is all about doing a good deed for those in need. It's Giving Tuesday, a day to donate your time or your money to nonprofits that strengthen and inform your community like this public radio station. Give back today so we can all listen tomorrow. Call 800 222 or give online at gpb.org. Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson is retiring in just a few weeks. He'll close out a 45-year career in public service. Today, Isaacson gives his farewell address to the U.S. Senate. I'm Ricky Bevington. We'll bring you highlights from Isaacson's address and tributes from other senators later today on All Things Considered from 4 to 6, right here on GPB, streaming live on the GPB apps and online at gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We are again live from WUGA in Athens. We're thrilled to be here for uh, the uh, live show today. And we're looking at a feed 
from the United States Senate. Johnny Isaacson has gotten up. He is now starting to give his farewell speech. We're going to dip in and listen to a little of it as he gets set to uh, do it. Um, he's um, uh, Tom Faust is listening to the f- to the uh, conversation going on. Isaacson is. We're watching a feed from the Senate. He's he is talking now, but apparently he hasn't yet gotten into his, uh, his the heart of his speech. Um, as we wait to hear that, uh, Charles, it's worth going back. Look, you wrote the book on Southern politics and the change, the new politics of the old South, which to this day is considered a crucial. Uh, book for understanding what's happened to Southern politics. When Johnny Isaacson was first in the Georgia State Legislature, he was one of the few, well, he was one of the few Republicans. Things change. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But right now, let's listen to a little of Johnny Isaacson saying goodbye to his Senate colleagues. What you have to do. It's a tough job. And if it's not done, it's not done right. It doesn't get done the way it should for the people there. So I'm making sure that when I leave and the last thing I do is to leave the people of Georgia in good hands, given the senior senator from Georgia retiring. Unfortunately, today at lunch, the members gave me a a luncheon and stole all my material. (laughs) I have, don't let this paper fool you, and I throw it all away coming in here. They've stolen all my good jokes, took over all the things I was gonna say, so I'm gonna make this very brief. But in the end, very brief is good. My dad told me one time, he said, son, your words have more power about how few you use than how many you use. I've always remembered that, and I make speeches that are really important. I make short speeches. I get to the point, I get out. And I'm going to give you some reasons that works. But I decided when I knew I was going to be outshined by the other members of the Senate at this luncheon today that I would do the best I could to honor Mitch McConnell, who's the greatest leader I've ever worked for in my 45 years in public life, People like the Vice President of the United States, who I'm so proud is in the chair, and I can tell my grandkids, who are all here, by the way, I hope you remember that time you were there with Mike Pence, the Vice President of the United States. You'd be president by then, Mr. Vice President, to hear a speech I made. But to everybody that's here, thank you for being here. I'm not going to call out names because I'd miss somebody, except Tester. You can't miss Tester. <laughs> but everybody else I'd, I'd miss, and I don't want to miss anybody because every one of you are important to me. The people that help us in the lunchroom, the people that help us in the stores, the people that help us get in and out of the cars, help us on bad days, snowy days, icy days, everything else. Just everybody helps us so much. It takes a lot of people to run a Senate and only one person to mess it up. I want to talk about one subject today and one subject alone, and it's going to be short, but there's something missing in this place. I'm given credit sometimes for being a bipartisan person. In fact, sometimes newspaper people write that I'm known for being bipartisan or being a softie. Some of them say worse than that, but I'm not going to do that. But I am a a bipartisan person. I never saw people get get things done by not agreeing with each other. You have to come to agreement. I made a living selling houses. You can't ever solve a problem if you've got two people and they won't agree to a price and agree to a time to move. You have to find common ground. Same thing with the law. You can't pass a law. You can't solve a problem. Just period, end of sentence. If you're one of these people who says, my way or the highway, then we're all in real trouble. So I want to talk about bipartisan, but what bipartisan really is, and I don't think most of you really know what bipartisan is, and I shouldn't say that to an educated group of people like this, who've been down a lot of tough trails like I have as well. But bipartisan doesn't mean that a Democrat and a Republican talk to each other every once in a while. It doesn't mean, it means this, that it means that two people come together, probably have differences, probably have a lot of differences, but they find a way to get to the end of the trail where there's a possibility of a solution. And then they do the things you have to do to get that position. America's today is built on people who found a way to get to that end of the solution. No question about it. I hate to ask this question the way I did, but I came in the back door. Is John Lewis here yet? No. Where's John? John, you're getting shorter. (laughs) John Lewis is one of the finest people I've ever known and a great friend of mine. We we were invited, I was invited to speak to the Senate a couple days ago, and and I recognized John who was there, and he introduced me and said some things that meant more to me than anything anybody's ever said to me. And so I said, I want you to come to to my my, my last speech, because I want to say a few things about you. Because in essence, really, John, to a much greater extent than me, but Anna and I together represent what things can change, how things can really change. If people want them to change, they're willing to do the things that let them change. 
I tell you, John was born in the 1940s. I was born in the 1940s. John went to, was born and uh, lived in Alabama. I lived in Georgia for a while. John Kenyon got his good senses together and he came to, he heard Shelby, Shelby was there, so he came to Alabama. But, uh, he's a good guy. John came there and John worked, lived in a shotgun house. That's where the hole in the back and hole in the front, and if you shoot through it, you don't hit anything. But John was a great civil rights leader in his youth. He was the president of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Violent Co Coordinating Committee. And John walked the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, where I lived. And I was part of the people that Earl Warren, who had all those signs around Georgia, I thought he was running for office. He said, impeach Earl Warren. I never got that figured out until I got a little older. But anyway, Earl Warren had been part of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. The schools were separate, decent, but equal had been thrown out. The schools were going to be integrated. The courts decided the only way to prove that you were doing it done with numbers. So they figured how much of a percentage of how many black people would constitute a good number to say you were desegregated, and vice versa, solving the, the problem with statistics. I was on some of those first buses that rode to Atlanta, Georgia, taking black students to white schools. And I had some good friends who were black. That's another thing Southerners are blamed for. So we always say, well, we had some really good friends who were black. I have some really good friends who are black. I still got one of them, John Lewis. But John Lewis is one of my real heroes in life because I watched what he went through to help us see the light in the South, in my part of the South, Georgia. And he was a hero, and he was a hero to me. And when I got to Congress, one of the most proudest things I'm proud of, John introduced me to be sworn in. Vice President, of the, uh, the Speaker of the House swore me in, and I was down on the podium. Let me tell you what happened that morning. The clerk said, uh, we'll now have Mr. Isaacson from Georgia who won a special election yesterday in Atlanta, Georgia, and has been declared the winner by the Secretary of State. We'd like to ask Mr. Lewis to escort him to the front. We'll give him one minute to make his acceptance speech, and we'll go back to business. I said, one minute? God, I haven't practiced all these years, and I'm going to get one minute? I can't do anything in one minute. But I wasn't going to argue with the guy my first day at work. <clears throat> so I went to the back of the room with John, and John walked down the aisle on, on the house side. I was not paying a lot of attention. I see the best thing to do is follow John. So I followed John, and when John got through introducing me, I followed him to the well, and I said thank you, everybody, and named three or four people that helped me get there, and then said, well, I'm going to work, <coughs> and I'm honored to be here. What they didn't tell me was that if you're in the House at that particular day, the mic for the people who are Republicans was on the left. The Republicans spoke from the right. This dummy followed John, who was smart, and went to the right where he was supposed to go. I went to the left, where I wasn't supposed to go. I noticed these eyeballs on the front row just going around and around. And some guy slipped up behind me after I gave my one-minute speech and said, so you're going to start this fast demonstrating what a liberal guy you are. <laughs> it's one of those voices that came over the back of my shoulder, just kind of like a, something hanging over my head. And I turned around and looked, and this other guy came up to me and said, don't pay any attention to that. Named Tom Latham, and he went on about his business. I asked somebody later in the day, well, what was that guy have meant that? He said, well, the problem is you got labeled when you got elected. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you got elected in a Republican district, but they said you said nice things about Democrats. I said, is that, is that wrong to do? He said, well, we were trying to get some way to get Boehner not to appoint you to any committee, or the Speaker not appoint you to any committee. So we heard you help write No Child Left Behind. That was how I started out in the House of Representatives. I was a Republican who was in a majority Democratic House that was unwanted because I was not, in fact, Newt lost, and some of you know this because I see a few faces over there. Newt lost that race by seven votes in the House, seven members who said we won't vote for Newt for Speaker. Newt got reelected, but he couldn't, and Tom knows it. So uh, Jenny Isaacson continues to make a farewell speech. Uh, just so you know, um, we're recording this, of course, and you'll hear more of it from uh, uh, all Things Considered later this afternoon, but also Heath Garrett, uh, who is Johnny Isaacson's closest political advisor, is up there watching the speech from the gallery, and he'll be on Political Rewinds. He's heading back to Atlanta uh, for the show tomorrow. And uh, so is Eric Tannenblatt. He flew up this morning to be with Johnny up in the gallery, and, uh, and, and, uh, and he'll be on, Eric will be on the show Friday. So we'll have a lot more opportunities to uh, hear how the uh, Senate paid tribute to Johnny Isaacs. And Charles, one quick note, and then I want to pick up on what I started to ask you about. Um, Tom Faust pointed out to me 
that the Republican conference planned a luncheon in Johnny's honor today. And that's typical. It's the Republican caucus. They have a regular luncheon. This time they decided to make Johnny an honoree. And Democrats, Chuck Schumer uh, said, I would, if you will allow me, I'd like to be there. And by the end of it, all 100 members of the United States Senate, Democrat and Republican alike, came to that luncheon for Johnny. And now 40 members of the Senate have signed up to pay tribute to him after Johnny finishes his remarks. What a career. Well, really remarkable given the tenor of politics in D.C. to be able to get even a few <laughs> of the members of the opposite party, much less the entire Democratic Party, to come and join in this celebration of Johnny's career. You know, um, Audrey, let's not mistake two things. There are certainly going to be a lot of people who, who don't agree with all the things that Johnny Isaacson stood for. He, he was, after all, a Republican and a pretty conservative Republican. He did find ways to work across the aisle on issues that he could find commonality with Democrats on. So in a way, what we're talking about here today is not whether you agree with the Johnny Isaacson on the issues. We're talking about a man whose entire career was one of uh, dignity, respect, of uh, treating all people uh, the way he would want to be treated himself. This is about Johnny Isaacson, the person. I've known him for 35 years. I have reported, I've been in reporting about some of the things that he stood for. I've done what you do, criticized some of the stands he took on issues. But he always, always was kind and respectful in dealing with reporters like me. So I see it from that perspective, but clearly um, all of us who have uh, been touched by him get that part of him, regardless of whether we agree with all of his politics. Well, and I would add, too, that I know Senator Isaacson indirectly, primarily through uh, two components. One of them are his staff, Mm. who um, I interact with on a fairly frequent basis because they come and um, talk to us in applied politics, and many of them are students who have come out of our our program and our um, our school. The other are uh, what they've done for the state and the University of Georgia, too, because Senator Chambliss and Senator Isaacson have spent so much time working with young people um, and bringing them into their office and training them and helping them. And those students come back and they have such a great experience. If I ha- if I can send someone to a Senate office, I say, please try and get into yeah. Senator Isaacson's office. But let's now, um, Charles, go back to what I started to talk about before we wanted to pick up Johnny's talking. Your book, um, The New Politics of the Old South, really tracks um, the remarkable transformation of the South from the yellow dog Democratic days to a Republican stronghold. And now, and Johnny Isaacson was a huge huge part of that. I started to say when he was elected to the state legislature, he was in a vast minority. I think there were maybe 10 percent, 12 percent of the members of the House at that point were Republicans. I think he was the first Republican elected in Cobb County, which you know, hard to believe well, now. Yeah, now. Now we see Cobb County turning back, back Democratic yeah, again, right, yeah. after peaking as being an almost entirely Republican county yeah. at that point. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, I remember he t- told me this years and years ago, you know, his entire tenure in the Georgia legislature. First, he's in the House, then he runs for governor in 1990. He's yep. out of politics for two years, then he gets into the Senate for four years. So he's always in the minority, and then that shaped his ability and willingness mm-hmm. to work across the aisle. But I remember him telling me, there's no limit on what you can achieve if you don't care who gets the credit. Yep. And as a member of the minority, yep. you know you introduce a good idea, and some member of the majority is going to grab that, yep. and their name's what's going to be on it, not your name. But, you know, you may have been the one who planted that seed. Yeah. What happened over the years, uh, uh, Charles? Again, it's what your book is all about. You you had Johnny Isaacson and you had Paul Coverdale, right. another one of the rare, right. in this case, That's Atlanta right. Republicans yeah. in the state legislature uh, until the earthquake took place after the election. Really, it had started earlier, but the earthquake happened when Roy Barnes lost re-election and Sonny Perdue won the governor's office. Right. And up until that point, yeah, you could say Republicans were making headway, but it was still primarily a Democratic state. But in that election, what you saw happen was that one of the key elements of the Democratic Party, which was their strength in South Georgia, just eroded. Because what they used to be able to do was they would do well in rural South Georgia, and of course they'd carry the urban areas, 
and that would be sufficient. Uh, back in those days, we used to say that uh, a Democrat who got strong support in the black community could get 40 percent of the white vote was good. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, after Roy Barnes, you know, no other Democrats running statewide could get to that 40 percent. And so I think a lot of Democrats thought that 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 2002 election was an exception. They were simply voting against Roy Barnes and that Democrats in South Georgia would come back. They they didn't and they haven't and probably a lot of them aren't going to. And so what we saw in the Stacey Abrams campaign was an entirely different model of how a Democrat natural was about trying to win rather than trying to win back those folks. Yeah, I want to we're going to have to take a break in a moment, but I want to talk a little more about how, how this is turning again with you, given your uh, great wisdom on this subject. Before we before we leave completely, though, Johnny Isaacson, um, Audrey, the um, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, the fascinating thing about Isaacson is Charles alluded to the fact that he ran against Zell Miller for governor in 1990 in the general election. It was a bitter, bitter election. There was nobody who could be tougher on the campaign trail than Zell Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had James Carville and Paul Begala, two very, very tough consultants <laughs> yeah. handling that campaign. And the reality of it is that Isaacson remained a gentleman in a way that may have worked. I mean, I think a Democrat was going to win that election, yeah. probably. But he was no match for the, the street fighter Zell Miller, given the gentlemanly approach that Johnny Isaacson took to politics in those days. And so it's especially fascinating that given the chance, Zell Miller gave, a, gave Johnny Isaacson right. a big step up in politics. Right, right. Eventually. Well, he, right. Well, he taps him to head the state, state school board. Exactly. Again, you know, this was, what, I guess five years or maybe less than that after, after, after they after did run against each other. Him. Right. Yeah. So, so maybe that's a lesson that we can take away. It's certainly one that we talk about in applied politics, that here we have Senator Isaacson signaling to everyone that there's a way to have a very uh, valuable, productive, and respected career in Washington and your home state without doing the things that we criticize some politicians for doing. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll come back with more on Political Rewind today. So let's do the break, and we'll be back in one minute. You know it's something special when people across the globe come together to do one thing, give. I'm Elsa Chang, and Giving Tuesday isn't just another day on the calendar. It's a movement where you do something extra special for your community. Take that step. Get your give on today and support public radio. Make an online contribution at gpb.org or 800-222-4788. On the next Fresh Air, B.J. Miller, a hospice and palliative care doctor who started doing this work because he came close to death when he was in college and jumped on top of a park commuter train and got electrocuted. He lost both legs below his knees and one arm below his elbow. He's the co-author of the new book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB. Welcome back. Welcome back to Political Rewind Live from the studios of WUGA in Athens, Georgia. As I mentioned at the top of the show, starting on January 6th, Monday, January 6th, Political Rewind will go to a five-day-a-week program, five live shows, Monday through Friday. And uh, we're really happy that at that point, WUGA will broadcast the show every day. Um, and uh, really terrific to have with us today Dr. Audrey Haynes who runs the Applied Political Science Program here at University of Georgia, which trains uh, students uh, for political professions of a variety of of kinds. Absolutely. And the dean. Well, he's not actually the dean of the school, (laughs) but he is certainly the dean of political analysts in Georgia, Dr. Charles Bullock, uh, the uh, Richard B. Russell Professor of Political Science at Georgia. Charles, in your great work. It, I think you would agree that that's sort of like the fundamental text for you, isn't it? New for me, it is, right. Yeah, I don't mean, well, but I mean, it's used <laughs> yeah, so broadly yeah. and you've revised yeah, it over the years. Yeah. You, you make a point about how fascinating it is that um, the, uh, uh, that the South that, that turned the election against Hillary Clinton in 2016 uh, and toward Barack Obama 
was essentially the same South that set up a different dynamic in the Republican presidential race as well, right? Right, right. Talk about that, and then let's talk about how we see it moving forward to 2020. Yeah, yeah. South plays an interesting role now in in the presidential selection process in that the South, when it comes to November, is still predominantly a Republican area. But with regard to Obama in 2008, with regard to Hillary Clinton in 2016, you know, what really kind of put them on the track, which then got them the nomination, was doing very well in this section of the country that they weren't going to do particularly well in in November. Where over on the Republican side, you know, for a number of years, all you had to do was to see who won the South Carolina primary. And again, to mention, and we've mentioned already today, Newt Gingrich until 2012, when he wins the South Carolina primary, he breaks this record, though. But then, of course, with Trump in 2016, it's again so, but again, Oh, South Carolina is not even going to have a primary this year. Yeah, that's Republican right. Side. Yeah, right. The Republican. Yeah. All right. So let's apply that to 2020. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, Joe Biden who sees South Carolina as his firewall. Exactly like Clinton did. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so he, while they're starting to pick up their effort, the Biden campaign in Iowa, they virtually said, eh, we may not win it. We don't care. We're not going to win New Hampshire. We're coming to South Carolina. Um is, is that a smart bet on Biden's part? Well, if, if indeed, if he does get get the black vote, because South Carolina, like Georgia, is a state in which when it comes to a Democratic primary, African-Americans are going to cast the bulk of the vote. And what we've seen is that none of these other candidates, neither Buttigieg nor Cory Booker nor the recently departed Kamala Harris, was moving the needle at yeah. all among African-American yeah. voters. Okay. Why is the South, despite the fact that Trump won Georgia by five points. Let's talk about mm-hmm. Georgia particularly. Won Georgia by five points, but is now underwater here, despite the fact that the entire, uh, all the constitutional officers in Georgia are Republican, the legislature is Republican. But why are things starting to change? Yeah, once we look below this, this thing about, you know, all the constitutional officers are Republican, but we had some awfully close elections. Yep. So the gubernatorial election, you know, percent and a half, uh, John Barrow, Gets into a runoff for Secretary of State. Uh, there is the, the congressional seat, the sixth district that flipped. The seventh comes within just you know, a couple hundred <laughs> votes of, of slipping. And then, you know, the, the change of these state legislative contests. And, and what's happening? Uh, one of the things is that the, the electorate is becoming much more diverse. Now, in 2018, for the first time, whites cast less than 60% of the vote in Georgia. Go back 20 years ago, and they were casting one three-fourths of the, mm-hmm. the votes at that point. So that's a change. Another change is young voters, those mm-hmm. under 30, maybe even those under 40, are now pretty consistently voting Democratic. So the kind of the growth element, now the elements of this state that are growing, are all moving the Democratic connection. Uh, Kemp wins, and he wins by running a very much a rural-oriented campaign. Mm-hmm. And you talk to even some Republicans now, and they'll say they're not sure you could replicate that with success in 2022, which may get us back to Kelly Loeffler and why you want to appoint a suburban white woman to try to make sure that you get a share of that vote. Yeah. Um, Audrey, go ahead. I was going to say, one of the things that we know through the research is that people like to vote for people who look like them, too. When they see someone who they can identify with, there's much more of a likelihood they'll turn out. And the, the Republican Party, and I think the governor and others in the party know this and say this, their party looks a particular way, very white, very male, and it's very hard to bring in other voters who are much more diverse. Also, one thing I learned from Chuck, too, is, you know, what Zell Miller did with the Hope Scholarship, hmm. um, you know, that has created a younger, more educated stay in the state uh, and a lot of talent here that. Uh, also may have an, an implication. We, we may not see that in some of our surrounding southern states, but we see it going on here. Yeah. Just a little, little thing here. Pointing Kelly Leffler to the Senate will mean there'll be half as many female Republican U.S. senators as there are female Georgia state senators. Yeah. <laughs> That's really an interesting <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah, not a lot of... Okay, but all right, but, but uh, uh, you know... Uh, Dr. Andrew Gillespie, who is a frequent panelist right. on the show, mm-hmm. and you great. both know her well, mm-hmm. she points out every time we have this conversation that about a woman on the Republican ticket, whoever it may be, this was before uh, the the uh, appointment of, uh, of Loeffler was going to take place, uh, women don't vote just to vote for women. 
They vote around issues. You can't put somebody, a woman on the ticket and expect you're suddenly yeah. going to. Yeah. That's true, too. Yeah. But sort of, I mean, all other things being equal, mm-hmm. if you don't have some other reason, then, yeah, you vote for someone with whom you share a characteristic. And that's why, you know, those little short things that Candace put out, maybe on a little card, go through and list where they went to school and where they go to church and mm-hmm. you know, all these other things, figuring if nothing else, if you connect with them on one of those points, you'll vote for them. Now, clearly, if you disagree with them on policies, you, you won't. But, you know. Partisanship is still number one yeah, right now. Yeah, it still is, yeah. But you'd be surprised at how many people will, uh, I've had friends who are women, and we have research on this, where they're going down a ticket. They see a woman's name, and they identify with them, right, right. and they feel more connected. So do you think that, that Andra may be Andra may be mistaken about that? No, that a no. Woman might I think be it, more likely to vote for a woman just on the basis of gender? Well, I think, number one, as I said, partisanship is really going to be the, yeah. I mean, explain 95% of all voting, but... All things being equal, too, and that's what we do with our variables. And if you pick up 5%, they can make all the difference in the world, too. <laughs> and it, it, we're, not, we're not just talking about voting. We're talking about mobilizing, right? You know, and what people feel about their party and feelings matter. If you feel excluded from the Republican Party because you don't see people in it that look like you, why would you ever give it a second look? All right. Let me ask you one last question, because we're really running out of time rapidly. We've only had one Democrat declare for yeah. the second, what we've been calling race number two, the uh, Johnny Isaacson seat. Um, and, uh, uh, and and we haven't seen anybody else. We've heard people talking about they want to get in. But so far, Matt Lieberman, who is another completely untested a candidate whose dad, of course, is Joe Lieberman, has jumped into the race. Should we expect that now that we've got a, a choice in the Republican Party, that this is the time Democrats say, right. okay, I am willing to take her on, I'm not willing to take her on? Exactly right. Yeah, I think we're going to see probably at least one serious Democrat. I think Democrats would hope they could just have one serious they could rally around, kind of like the John Ossoff experience in the 6th District in the special election. But we may also see multiple uh, Democrats. Now, again, nobody with a statewide constituency, but if you get someone who has been elected to the state legislature, you know, they would have that background. Or maybe someone from the past, like a Mike Thurman, who did run three statewide contests yeah, successfully. Ran for Senate in 2010 right. Uh, right. and lost that and race. the timing may be good for a candidate like that. Might be, yeah. All right. That's good to uh, get your final words on on that subject. We'll look forward to seeing what happens with the Democratic side. And 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, Governor Kemp will uh, stand up and announce uh, that choice for the United States Senate. Uh, I keep calling her Kelly Loeffler. I'm getting all these people on Twitter and everything saying, Leffler, Leffler. Well, I, I'm not. We'll see. We'll find out tomorrow for sure uh, that we pronounce it right from now on. Uh, Charles Bullock, Audrey Haynes, thank you so much for being here. By the way, Senator David Perdue is now up in the United States Senate. He is paying tribute to Johnny Isaacson. Heath Garrett, back from Washington, where he's watching it all unfold from the Senate gallery, will talk to us about the uh, Isaacson tribute today. Plus, we'll have a lot more with Greg Bluestein, who has dominated reporting on the governor's choice uh, for the last couple of weeks will be with us as well. So it should be a fun show. I look forward to seeing all of you then. Thank you to WUGA for uh, hosting us today. We're excited about being on your air every day of the week, starting on Monday, January 6th. That's it for us today. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow. Go dogs. <laughs> <laughs>